This is Josh Allen Friedman with Tales of My Dead Heroes. And with episode six, we just decided to pull the episode that was ready for today when we decided the sound was too rough. No matter how much noise reduction and restoration I tried, it still might have been an assault on the ear. So instead, I'm bringing you something from out of left field. Seymour the Kike is an excerpt from my future novel, All Roads Lead to Great Neck. My family lived in Great Neck from 1966 to 72. These long years were fueled by the greatest music in history. The film war East, drugs, hippies, more drugs, Vietnam, psychiatrists, and Jews. Great Neck, Long Island was a liberal Jewish enclave that became the butt of Bush Belt jokes. Seymour is the fictional alter ego who haunts a character based on my pious, four-eyed high school principal, Dr. Bixhorn. He was the principal's grandfather who hustled and pimped in the Jewish ghettos of 19th century Europe. Seymour the Kike was a hook-nosed figure model hired to pose for painters and sculptors of anti-Semitic propaganda. You know, cartoon caricatures of bent-over ghetto Jews or money-grubbing bankers who supposedly ruled the world. But I totally made him and his job up. This is fictional, at least I think so. Yet I've come to believe he may have existed. Can a fictional character of your own making become a personal hero? Well, I wish I'd known this guy. As for the novel, it remains an albatross because I mapped so many roads that lead to Great Neck that I got lost. But I intend to rein in the map and bring this down the finish line. Seymour, the kike. De Hakronos, turn it left, please, by 45 degrees. Seymour, the kike, obliged. Like this, Ergok, he said with a delicate turn. Yes, let some sunlight upon the crook of the nose so that we might highlight its shadow, perspective. Their rapport was that of a classical sculptor and his minotaur. There was a difference between a glance and a gaze. A squint or a squinch or a cock of the eye. These were not subtle differences. As artist and model, their collaboration was practically erotic. Seymour's disembodied gaze gave way to a glance. His look of yearning was then prompted by the professor to one of lustful greed. Think of gold, Seymour, of gold service plates, so shiny and pure, you can see yourself in their reflection. The Jew would not go through such intimate gestures for just any artist. And now, please put on the yarmulke and slouch for me. Ah, oh, Seymour, my muse. It's not easy. To sit only still for so long, it strains my kiskers. As a genetic life model, Seymour had no equal. Framed in the artist's studio were anthropological charts graphing the inferiority of the Jew, 
Professor Gunther Cuck was a master. Viennese sculptor Bruno Zack and British illustrator E.A. Cox were his only peers. Professor Cuck knew how to indulge company. The professor's hausfrau had laid out a tray of herring slices and bialis for his subject. Seymour would reach over for a slice and slurp it down between his lips. Don't move the mouth! Come to riposto! Seymour was the only subject of his kind personally hired to pose for the esteemed German caricaturist Hans Gunther Cuck, a leading artist of 19th century anti-Semitica. Cuck did rather quick charcoal sketches from which he would later produce more involved works, whether by paintbrush or ceramics. He found the perfect model for his Jewish zipkun, his Yiddish step and fetch it. Seymour the Kike inspired anti-Semitica could be found in some of the finest homes in Vienna. For ten gold marks, he personally posed to perpetuate a character that defamed his people after the Age of Enlightenment right up unto the Holocaust, so that Goyim in the great Christian world could jeer and make mockery of Jews. There were the hook-nosed cookie jars for children, the Black Forest beer garden mugs where Hausfrauen and Menschenkind alike could hoist the tall one in mockery. Popular in Warsaw was pottery depicting kneeling Jews clutching money bags, later manufactured by the Royal Dalton Factory in Britain. Seymour was once an honored guest of the École des Beaux-Arts in Paris before a painterly assemblage who did figure drawings of the Jew. He was brought in for the gig by stagecoach. Even posters of the Rothschilds, their Satan-like claws clutching a globe of the earth, used Seymour's likeness. His anonymous visage would inspire German propaganda blaming Jews for communism, then appear on Russian posters blaming Jews for capitalism. It would even reappear a century later on posters in Islamic countries. But most of the actual canvases were lost through time. The professor espoused an ideology, one in which he saw the degeneration of modern society. Unbridled lewdness is all about Seymour. The beast and man has been unchained. Ja, professor, that is true. At the opera, I see ladies who are amateurs in love, with too many lips to kiss. The people wear clothing of colors which seem to have been matched in the dark. The clothing today is an abomination. And in the streets, idiotic marionette plays where the actors' voices babble like idiots. Hold that pose. Ja. Be still, please. Seymour listened to the professor's tirades indifferently. He was an enlightened Jew who dressed in a combination of trad and modern. There were those that considered Seymour Shanfadigoyim, a blight on the Jewish people, one who had brought shame. He did play up this part for the professor, gave the artist what he sought. Seymour had cultivated a symbiotic relationship with the oppressors of his people, powerful figures in Prussian society. People go to music halls. They pass by the opera house yawning at Wagner, complained Cuck, stroking his charcoal. And Tartung! Who'll keep depravity in check? Some European intellectuals said this degeneration of polite society was what was responsible for more anti-Semitism, but Cuck saw Jews as part of the problem. And America, the stories from America. 
Perhaps that was where it was coming from. Cuck had nothing good to say about America and let it be known. Seymour fell in step. Jews, listen to me, I tell them in our town, said Seymour, suddenly animated. America, don't get me started. I fuck Christopher Columbus and Yankee Doodle. They defied King George III. In America, they use many plates for one meal and change silverware for each course. Where even Fraulein can go to gymnasium and marry Goyam and enter business like men? No, America is not for us. Except for Hoboken, New Jersey. The pickle brine is said to inspire a hundred ecstasies. Both had a good laugh. Ah, Seymour, you're such a find. But you know, the French ones are much better at sniveling. And then he tossed a handful of gold marks on the floor. Clutch at them, Seymour. The kike didn't need to be told. His instincts already had him dive to the ground. Sure enough to clutch and grasp. Coupe de grace. Ja, hold that pause, baby. Seymour the Kike's fees as a life model brought in a fair sum, but they were infrequent and not the primary source of his income. He had fled to the Whitechapel ghetto of London, keeping an agency of sorts in the Blackwall Railway. There was stationed his ill-kept muse for the two Holsteiners, beasts of burden who pulled his carriage. Whitechapel was the most pitiful slum known to Western man, worse than the Lower East Side in America, worse than anywhere in Ireland. This was not an idle boast. One evening, Seymour was alarmed to be rounded up among suspects in the search for Jack the Ripper. But this was absurd. Seymour's girls loved him. He accomplished good deeds for the community. He even set up a Seymour the Kike Benevolent Burial Society in the Blackwall buildings. This for fallen women abandoned by all. There were thousands of fallen women who came through Whitechapel. Seymour managed only a few. The gangs gave him wide berth. They'd seen Prussian aristocrats emerge from his carriage, a most unusual sight at the East India docks. When leftist reformers tried to redeem him, he chased them out. A noted albino rabbi from the Fabian Society pleaded with Seymour to leave his occupation and open a midrasha or a gymnasium or become a rabbi himself. But Seymour held steadfast to his ugly calling. Seymour the Kike, brute pimp of the Whitechapel ghetto. In reality, he was not much of a brute, yet he'd been driven from three different shtetls in Poland. Forget about pogroms, his own people lit torches and flushed him out. Respectable Jews rioted against the local bordello. He found his niche in the depravity that was London's East End. There they began calling him Seymour the Kike. But some said he was called that even as a boy, a learned yeshiva boy gone bad who rebelled against the Talmud and desecrated his rabbi's yarmulke. Now he only quoted the Torah when it suited his purposes. The conditions of the poor on London's East End were more hideous than any shtetl in Russia, Galatia, or the Austro-Hungarian Empire. 
the Victorians were losing the fight against sanitary science. But there was no czar, no pogrom massacres. British society engaged in some degree of religious tolerance and didn't tighten a vise of restrictions around Jewish necks. There had already been a Jewish Lord Mayor of London, and of course Disraeli, the Jewish-born Prime Minister and namesake of a future Cream album. As in New York, Yiddish-speaking immigrants entered the lower working class, filling the garment trade sweat factories, pushing fish carts, and keeping on pushing, moving on up. Throwing leather from the ghetto cobblestones, Jewish boxes began to dominate the sport almost as in New York. And as in New York, the revolutionary Yiddish theater begat modern show business. But it all began in the insufferable, lice-infested, hot, freezing, sewage-leaking, coal-and-sulfur-spewing, malnourished ghetto. Nine to a room, with families bursting out the seams. Most inhabitants were cursed in a predestined cycle of poverty, which, unlike in America, recursed their offspring. The sulfuric soot and smoke that hung over the east end of London suited Seymour the Kike well. He would fill his lungs with diseased air, which to Seymour was still the air of freedom. There were always fresh hordes from the countryside, hale and hearty, who descended upon London. They replaced sixteen-hour-a-day laborers whose spirits and spines had buckled in the sausage grinder of the metropolis. Few survived past middle age toiling in such factories, and among the arrivals were bonnie lassies from the outlands. Not all of them wanted to work in factories. Seymour dedicated his services to them. strange personage sometimes followed when Seymour made his rounds, intruding on his personal affairs. It materialized from out of the mists. The golem is with us tonight, said Seymour to McGrath, his coachman, up in the rumble seat. McGrath only nodded, a man of few words. He headed the carriage toward the hospital for the hopelessly ill, a poor Jewish girl who walked along the docks had perished. They would retrieve the body for Hebrew burial. The golem-like presence, gaunt and non-judgmental, didn't ask questions, just sat, listened, and waited for Seymour to speak from his soul. What more do you want from me? Seymour said. Why are you silent? The bearded apparition looked back blankly. He was one of those red-headed Jews, with a Freudian mane. Yeah, you want for me to do the talking, said Seymour. The spirit affected a shrug as if in agreement, indicating the ball was in Seymour's court. Odder still, whenever the spirit appeared, it would only stay for exactly fifty minutes, then seemed to say, our time is up, and disappear. The carriage of Seymour the Kike was one tricked-out buggy. It had its own coat of arms in defiance of feudal rules prohibiting Jews from having such. Needless to say, it was not to be found in Burke's peerage. The emblem depicted a chicken, perhaps kosher, riding the Lion of Judah. It held a sprig of olive in its beak, proper, 
but had an unnaturally large hooked beak. There were also two twirling dreidels on the emblem, as if signifying the child's toys were engaged in a game of chance or gambling of some sort. The elliptical springs of the carriage were calibrated loose so that its suspension hung low rider. Wheels and grills were appointed with silver metal flakes that twinkled as the spokes rotated. Kerosene-lit crystal lamps glowed at the quarter-light side windows, giving a garish faux coronation effect. It was overdone in a way that would have not met favor with Victorian standards of taste. Seymour, the most important occupant, always sat back facing forward to keep watch over his charges. There were seats for two ladies facing backward. Decked out like a ghetto noble, he wore a long-skirted Russian sable kaftan coat and ushanka hat. Talmudic scholars who passed Seymour in the road were appalled. Seymour cursed them. May your kidneys burn with envy. And then they toddled off like Chinamen. He even saw Hasidim wander the ghetto at night in great secrecy and shame. For them, even thinking of a strange woman was a sin. Some refused to believe that female members of their own faith could stoop to such an unspeakable act as prostitution. But inevitably, before the transaction, one troubling question always arose. Was she Jewish? Together, Seymour and McGrath commuted in this pimpmo buggy, which signified they were going places. Seymour, McGrath, and the Dubuque. Tonight was a holy mission. Seymour unbosomed himself to his Yetzirah, that sneaky bastard of an apparition sitting opposite. In the Torah, it says, Only through a man can a woman enter heaven, said Seymour. I am that man. Even the rats in the alley despise a man who is weak with women. What, I should spend my life bent over the Talmud every day and eat tasteless matzah? And have no acquaintance with the face of a coin? Gatenu! He spit three times out the window. No, I provide. Seymour did keep a few girls walking the docks, old ones past their prime, whom he took pity on. They swung their little handbags to draw attention. He would check nightly from his carriage, collecting their shillings. Most of Seymour's girls were not common prostitutes, but of a different caliber. In moments of financial straits, they solicited his stewardship. The Kike sought out Jewish daughters from the hinterlands of Eastern Europe, where the girls were fully developed by the age of 15. Some came all the way from the Pale of Settlement, and how they were drawn to Seymour, God only knew. He arranged travel papers and railway passage, soon to be repaid from their earnings. There was a Cook Wheatstone telegraph above the office at the Blackwall Railroad, ostensibly used for railway communications. It also served Seymour the Kike. Like other advancements in the history of communication, its evolution was driven by sexual desire. When summoned by clients for his services, the veiled messages came by the swiftest means in the world, the electric telegraph. Transmissions from visiting dignitaries were retrieved by McGrath at the railway. There were the high-level London clients, landed gentry, and grand burghers. And from the continent, 
Dignitaries en route to London sought Seymour's resourcefulness, whether for an hour of sin, a night of it, or even in search of a mistress. To these rich men, no friend is more valuable than me. I can provide maidlers they couldn't find in a lifetime. A marshal of the Imperial Guard, who'd known Seymour before he was run out of Poland, seeking an English maid or dance hall girl, a depraved Prussian capitan from the pale, chest full of medals, wearing bast boots. He arrived to Whitechapel by a sleigh in the snow, revealing his darkest desire for young girls. Er, Kaik, they wired from Berlin. If you please, your Kaikness, they inquired from Luxembourg, pending the arrival of Count Wittelsbach. Monsieur Kaik, they cabled from Paris, requesting a rendezvous with the brute pimp of Whitechapel. They didn't want to negotiate with riffraff in the treacherous alleys of old smoke. Once even the Don Cossack, supreme Ottoman himself. He likes them to yodel, said Seymour. Yes, even the Cossacks came. That bolt of electrical transmission through the telegraph was synonymous with some depraved Polish officer's darkest wish. Seymour had cultivated a symbiotic working relationship with the oppressors of his people. And the girls, simple maidlers, they came to him by train. He would describe his young female delicacies like food. He loved plump thighs of young womanhood, described like lamb pitchel to some Prussian gourmand, bosoms finer than a calf's foot, suspended in mucus-like garlic-infused jelly. And you ought to taste her kugel. A hundred ecstasies you'll get from her kugel. She will salt your soup to your taste. Ach, how that woman can cook. What little cherry blossom do you have for me tonight? Count Wittelsbach asks me. Uh, we will dine on stuffed goose. But never mind the goose. This girl, she has a hundred tastes from heaven across her body. And she cooks kashavanikas like God himself. So what does this count do? This puts him, may his liver rot and be eaten by buzzards. I dare not even tell you. But next time I made him pay a shilling to kiss each of her fingers. That's nine bob. What happened to the tenth? asked the spirit, his only question of the night. Oh, that would have been the tip of a pinky. He bit it off last year. A pincher is one thing, but it's a biter what worries me more. McGrath knocked his front teeth out. Girls who took the iron step up into Seymour's coach felt the embrace like a soft spider's web of their first cashmere rug and a warm blanket for comfort in the cold. Hello, my darlings, he welcomed. Shana Punum, with a pinch of the cheek. Shana Tukas, with a pinch of the bottom. My maidlers, they come to me. Forget you had a mother, a mother who abandoned you. I am your mother. I hold out my arms and say, come to Seymour. I make a nice bed for them with a down pillow, a pillow that would float through the air. They sit on my lap. Take that handkerchief off your head and let down your hair. And they do. I take them to my bosom. And they take me to theirs. When they come hungry from the workhouse, I feed them pickles and jellies. I dab upon them the scent of Fantasia de Fleurs from Paris. They know they can come to Seymour the Kike. He will take care of them. Let them sip from his own bottle of Igri Bicavir 
and puff from his Monte Cristo, from my lips to theirs. And then he roared at the apparition in the carriage. I even banished their debukes. Do I not earn them a decent living? Is this not a service to mankind? The spirit sat mute. It's true Seymour rescued girls from the factories, those that wanted rescue from a fate sure to leave them in shambles before the age of 30. There was even an injunction that barred prostitutes from donating money to the synagogue. Reb Kike, they say, with a tuppence or two. Can you give this to the shul? And I do. McGrath was strong-armed to see more of the kike should trouble arise. He had fled Ireland in a bad way, driven out from his own homeland like Seymour. The Irisher had hairy black ears, and it was said that in his lair, McGrath pissed and shat wherever he stood like a horse. One night there were screams from a girl along the West India dock. On top a makeshift bed of straw, speckled with horse manure, laid Ikey the Pincher, a mental case who received much less notoriety than Jack the Ripper, as he wasn't considered such a top-priority menace. But he would pinch prostitutes against their wishes. As McGrath came toward the situation, the pincher charged, hands outstretched like lobster claws. McGrath clocked him in Irish roundhouse. Down he went. Seymour and McGrath then picked up a rock and crushed all his fingers. That ought to take the pinch out of Ikey, said Seymour, dusting his hands. Young Maidle is bursting with the first bloom of womanhood, sang Seymour, unbosoming himself to the psychiatric spirit. I call out in the night to them, sing toward heaven, and they come to me. They come! Ack, I am a highly gifted degenerate. If they have a good night's work, I reward them with Laksh and Kugel, and I lull them to sleep. But where is my thanks? I didn't send them to a factory to work. I didn't make them till wheat fields or push a plow. As they approached the hospital, he serenaded his Dubuque with cantorial fervor. Such a singer was Seymour. He could have been a cantor. Why are you a pimp? Jews have asked me. To them I say, we will never know the answer, but it is important that you ask the question. And he left it at that. McGrath halted the coach in the black mud of the entrance to the hospital for the hopelessly ill. No lady in a trailing skirt would ever be caught dead walking through it. The weather was predictably drizzly. They picked up a body they had been summoned to collect. Well, we'll not let her go to the teaching hospital, said Seymour. They're cannibal quacks. The body, wrapped in a filthy hospital sheet, was hoisted onto the luggage rail by McGrath. A cockney lass what spoke Yiddish, explained Seymour to the presence. To a nearby potter's field they headed. Seymour emptied the contents of the poor girl's pocketbook in his lap, her last precious feminine possessions. Several hairpins a tortoiseshell comb, a fragrant handkerchief, a lace fan, and a stale crust of kidney pie. She likely sold herself for this crust of kidney pie, she did. 
Seymour gobbled the leftover. He was known to do this when he exited pubs, finishing scraps on strangers' plates. He took offense to one last item in the pocketbook. They get their own rubber condoms made in Germany. Can you imagine? In Ireland, they'd be arrested, spoke McGrath from the coach box. Little Irish law would do him some good. Condoms were rarely used, hard to come by. The black syphilis was considered rightful punishment for consorting with prostitutes. They reached the burial grounds. The horses trod slowly and followed the creeping night down a narrow embankment. Seymour held his lamppost high before a Star of David signpost. All right, then. Abrews go here. There were mass graves already crowded with indigent prostitutes, but they found what seemed a fresh dig spot. Only the best for daddy's little girl, said Seymour, removing two spades from the carriage. McGrath began with a sweet swing of the spade. He came from a family of ditch diggers. Seymour opened his basket of last right materials. He proceeded to unwrap the girl and swipe an oilcloth over her body to remove any visible dirt. We cleanse the body of schmutz for purification. The apparition stood by silently. We're an independent sort of Jevra Kadisha. Can't do the whole bit, Seymour apologized. But we do this as a chesed shalemet. It was a good deed of truth, a favor which the deceased could not return, devoid of ulterior motives. Seymour performed the ritual like a child playing doctor, or in this case, rabbi. Any legitimate rabbi would have shuddered over the shoddiness of the procedure. There was no way to bathe the deceased in water, as the water pipe at Seymour's vile habitation below the railway oozed a brownish fluid. Oddly fit to make me own kasha with it, he said. And the very idea that a female was being sanctified by brutish men and not pious females was a blasphemy in itself. But considering the utter destitution of this penniless prostitute with no one left on earth to care, at least someone made a go of it. That's what the local Seymour the Kike Benevolent Burial Society was for. Was it possible Seymour was also a mensch? Perhaps God would understand. McGrath was a mudslinger of the first magnitude. He dug like a demon, slinging spadefuls of earth that hummed through the air. The ground gave way without much resistance here, as there was no telling how many times it was tilled for new internments. Seymour removed a white linen from his basket, the takrikum. This shroud, without pocket, symbolizes that we take nothing with us when we leave this world, and are all equal in death. And then he recited Kaddish over the body. McGrath stood back a respectable distance. It's a mutual kind of respect we have, me and McGrath. They often shared a table at Spitalfield's Gin Palace after making such rounds. The pimp ordered his off and off, but McGrath would not drink hops. He ordered a pint of tea, if you could call it that. What do we have? Seymour would shout like a gymnasium cheer. 
Mutual respect, came McGrath, in a rare outburst of talk. The kike asked the spirit if he would like to help. Would you care to throw a few shovels in, mine golem? Gives closure. The apparition hung its head, as if to shed a tear. Would you like to sit shiver for her, then? She's nobody to sit shiver. But at this instant, the fifty minutes were up. The spirit disappeared. I thought so, said Seymour. Be gone, you cursed putts! A black summer upon you! Oddly enough, the spirit always seemed to take off the month of August. And now, may God forgive me for any disrespect I might have shown in preparing this young lady for kingdom come. Seymour then placed a fresh rose on top of the grave. This is Josh Allen Friedman with Tales of My Dead Heroes. Visit our website at blackcracker.fm and catch up on last season's series, Tales of Times Square, The Tapes. See ya next time. Thank you.